Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. Today, dress listeners, I'm actually flying solo because Cass is on maternity leave. Congratulations, Cassidy and Sean and baby Leo. So it might just be me for a little bit here and there, but um, Cass will be back very soon. And um, believe it or not, in the 350 episodes of Dress that we have produced so far, that's an estimation, we have just one, one episode dedicated to the history of shoes. Well, that is until now, because, um, you know, sometimes even Cass and I have to scroll back to to remember all the episodes that we've done in the last five years. But um, we are wildly overdue for another one about arguably one of the most, if not the most ubiquitous accessory on the planet, and that is shoes, of course. A necessity for most people, a form of adornment, obsession, and fetish for others. Today, fashion historian Risa Britannia joins us to talk about her recently released book simply titled Shoes. Risa teaches at FIT, the Fashion Institute of Technology. However, some of you might be more familiar with her as the host of Glamour Magazine's video series, where she fact-checks the historical accuracy of the costumes seen in period film and TV productions. Risa, welcome. Thank you, April. It's great to be back on my favorite ever podcast. (laughs) Well, um, many of our listeners will recall that you have joined us before on the show back in 2019 for an episode entitled Styling the American Suffragist, Mm -hmm. where we chatted about the fashions worn by American women campaigning for the right to vote. So thank you for joining us again to talk about one of your new projects, All Things Shoes. Yes. So um, we chat with a lot of authors about their books on the show, of course, but this is actually your first book. I'm I'm certain that it will not be your last. Oh, let's hope. And it was your suggestion that we talk a little bit about the process of making the book, which I think is genius. And I bet a lot of our listeners will be quite curious um, to know more about this. Who is the publisher and how did you first start on this project and start working with them in particular? Well, Shoes is actually part of a series called the Tiny Folio series by Abbeville Press, And it's a publishing company that specializes in fine art books. And this tiny folio series features these miniature volumes, and they focus on a range of art topics from overviews of a single artist's work to things like highlights from an art institution's collection. And they're these cute little books. They're adorable. And you've probably seen them (laughs) in museum gift shops. Uh, But anyway, a representative from Abbeville Press actually reached out to me via my website and 
asked if I would be interested in authoring the newest edition to the series, which was to focus on shoes. And as a self-identifying shoe lover, I happily obliged. Yes. And and I just want to say that just because the book is miniature does not mean that it's not jam-packed with like super awesome there's so much scholarly information and amazing images. Like it, it's it's really great. I'm curious from the beginning to the end, how long did the book take to produce? It all happened really quickly, actually. So from contract signing to the actual release of the book, it was less than a year. That's that's insane. Yeah. That that is that is unheard of. <laughs> Well, it probably took me about five months to do all of the writing and to do the image selections, but this was all happening during the pandemic. So Ah, yeah, I was working from home in my little apartment in Manhattan and the walls of my makeshift home office were just covered with hundreds upon hundreds of pictures of shoes. Yeah. I remember when you were doing image selection, you're like, ah, you should see my walls. (laughs) Well, I'm a very visual person, and so I needed to be able to see the layout at all times. (laughs) Would you tell us a little bit about the format of the book, as well as the writing and research process that you have already referenced? Sure. Well, like I said, it's a tiny book, and I knew that I wouldn't be able to do an exhaustive history of all of shoes ever. Mm -hmm. So I had to limit my focus to women's fashionable footwear in Europe and America, And the book actually features eight chapters divided by time period. So the first couple chapters cover entire centuries because, you know, fewer shoes survive from these earlier periods. Of course. But the eras that are featured in subsequent chapters, they get a little narrower and more focused as we approach present day. And the book is largely image-driven, and the written text introduces each time period at the beginning of each chapter. And so I knew this to be the standard format for the books in the Tiny Folio series. So the way I approached the publication was actually as if I were curating an exhibition. Oh, that's interesting. I like that. Yeah, I treated each image as if it were a loaned object, each caption like it was an exhibition label, and each chapter intro like it would be the wall text for the section of a gallery. Yes, and this is your museum trading at work. It is. (laughs) So the book covers over four centuries of shoes, beginning in 1600, going all the way up to 2021. Mm -hmm. How many images does the book include? And I would love to hear from you about the process of obtaining image rights. Again, this is something that you suggested we talk about So I'm sure you have plenty to say on this topic. Well, I think there are about 250 pairs featured in the book. Mm -hmm. And like I said, I approached the image selection as if I were choosing objects for a museum exhibition. So that meant I basically went shopping in (laughs) in the collections of various institutions. So I looked at the Metropolitan Museum of Art— I looked at the Victoria and Albert Museum, the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, and of course, our home institution, the museum at FIT. Mm -hmm. And it really did feel like online shopping in a way because I was just scrolling through these digitized collections and choosing the shoes that I thought would be good contenders. And I was just adding them to my proverbial cart. (laughs) And... 
Thankfully, my publisher took care of negotiating all of the image licensing fees with each institution. And of course, I had to call in favors where I could. But the reality was that most of the photographs that I wanted to include were not in the public domain. Right. And I had a set number of images from each institution that I was allowed to use. So in the end, it was a giant puzzle of trying to work within those numbers while still, of course, telling a complete visual narrative Mm -hmm. with the best possible examples. And it was a really fun challenge. And I was able to get some good ones in there. I mean, uh, um, some? Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot. (laughs) Okay, since we've talked a little bit about the process of writing the book, uh, let's get into some of the shoe history Mm -hmm. that you write about. Perhaps two of the most quote-unquote unusual types of shoes that you write about are at the very beginning of the book in the 17th century. What are and who wore Chopin's and also slap sole shoes? Well, I feel like Chopin's are everyone's favorite. Yes. Because they're some of the earliest and most extreme types of elevated shoe. And they're very well represented in museum collections, probably because they're so weird and unusual looking. I think, I think people kept them yeah. because of that reason. They weren't just like regular old shoes. They were so unusual that like history was like, yes, we're going to keep these. So there's actually probably yeah. more in museum collections than proportionally there would be. Yeah. Yeah. But these Chopin's were basically mules or backless shoes. And they had these teetering platforms that were positioned towards the front of the shoe. Mm -hmm. And now these platforms typically ranged from about three to six inches in height, but there are some surviving examples that measure up to 20 inches tall. (laughs) You would definitely need help to walk in those. And these were worn by noblewomen and well-positioned courtesans in Italy and in Spain from about the 15th to 17th centuries. And they quite literally elevated the wearer to physical and social prominence. Yeah, it's like, look at me, look at me. I'm up here. Yeah. Now, the slap sole shoes were fashionable in the second half of the 17th century when heeled shoes became a more common style for both upper-class men and women. Mm -hmm. And heels allowed men to secure their feet in stirrups when horseback riding, you know, just for a little stability. And they did, unfortunately, have the drawback of sinking into the mud when dismounting. And any woman who has ever tried to wear heels on wet grass at an outdoor event knows— That's why we're all barefoot at those by the end of the night. (laughs) You all know exactly what I'm talking about here. And so to mitigate this, a flat sole was added to the bottom of a heeled shoe, but sometimes only affixed to the front, which means that there would be a loud slapping sound every time the loose end struck the heel. So think of it almost like the sound that a flip-flop makes. Yeah, I think they're so fascinating. So it's like these little these little high-heeled shoes that have this substrate on the bottom that's only attached in the front. So it's like flap, 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 Yeah. Love it. Okay, I want to talk about the sweetness of the 18th century chapter. Listeners, think about the style perhaps that Marie Antoinette wore. And let's talk about 18th century shoes. What are some of the defining characteristics, Risa, of the 18th century shoe? Well, fashionable footwear in the 18th century usually featured a leather sole 
and these elaborate fabric uppers, which were usually made of patterned or brocaded or embroidered silk. And these shoes had these two side seam openings Mm -hmm. to get your foot in, and there were these straps attached to the side called latchets. And these overlapped across the top of the shoe. So to fasten these, you could either use fabric ties, or if you were especially fancy, you could wear these large metal buckles, and some were even adorned with jewels. Yeah, and and even men um, wore these these jeweled buckles on their shoes at the time as well, not just women. They were quite fancy. Mm-hmm. Do you have any particular pairs uh, or, or a pair uh, that you would like to discuss from this chapter in the 18th century? Yes, One of my favorite pairs from this chapter comes from the collection at the Victorian Albert Museum. And the pair dates from about 1750 to 1760-ish. And it's a very particular French style called the pompadour shoe. And this style featured a higher heel that was placed farther underneath the arch of the foot, which created this, like, illusion this visual effect of a shoe that was smaller and daintier than it actually was. Because that was quite desirable at the time. Right, to have tiny, tiny feet. Yes. Oh, that's interesting. I did not know that. Okay, so let's talk about the first half of the 19th century. We see the heels that had been so popular for both men and women in the 18th. They start to disappear, more or less. So how would you characterize the silhouette of early 19th century shoes? Well, it's important to realize that heels were so closely associated with the French aristocracy during the 18th century. And understandably so, tastes changed dramatically after the French Revolution. (laughs) And generally, fashionable dress became much simpler, and footwear followed in the same trend. So the heels gradually lowered, until shoes became completely flat by about 1810. And these were slippers that had soles made of leather, and the fabric uppers were typically made of silk satin. Yes, and I think that uh, a lot of people, when they see this style of kind of like early 19th century shoe, they immediately think of ballet slippers. Yeah. Which, indeed, there is a connection between this era of footwear and the ballet. Would you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so the overall shape of the slipper remained pretty slender and tight for the first half of the 19th century, but there was this shift away from the pointed toe that -hmm. was fashionable during the first two decades to a square toe during the 1830s and 40s. The fashion for square-toed slippers actually coincided with the introduction of point work in ballet. And this was a technique made popular by the famed dancer Maria Taglioni. So the shoes from this period actually look a lot like contemporary point shoes that ballerinas wear today. And those have that very distinctive square toe and even those ribbon laces that are meant to be tied around the ankle. Mm -hmm. And that's because Maria Taglioni at the time was dancing in fashionable shoes of the era. Now, they might have been manipulated a little Mm -hmm. bit here and there, but it's the silhouette of the shoe from the era that she danced that has now become what we think of as a ballet slipper. Yeah, the quintessential point shoe. Yeah, it's amazing. 
So how does the fashionable shoe silhouette change in the late 19th century? Well, first of all, the shape of shoes literally changes in that footwear sees the designation of actual right and left shoes. (laughs) That's right, dress listeners. There were no right and left shoes before that. No. Shoes were just shoes. (laughs) Yeah, and prior to this, shoes were made identically, and Mm -hmm. they were called straights. And I can only imagine how uncomfortable they must have been, so I'm sure this was a very welcome development. Yes. (laughs) But stylistically, the silhouette changes in that the heel returns to fashionable footwear in about the 1870s. And interestingly, these heels tended to be very curved with a flared base, as if to mimic the hourglass-shaped bodices that prevailed in fashionable dress. Mm. By the 1880s and 1890s, pumps became more common for evening. And when I say pump, I mean a strapless heeled shoe with a closed toe, or as I personally like to describe it, a shoe-shaped shoe. (laughs) It's like if you think of like the general shape of a shoe, I feel like that's what a pump is. Right. It's the emoji of the shoe. (laughs) And this pump is a style that remains a staple today. So it's really timeless. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I know that women were wearing boots in certain contexts throughout history preceding this time, but especially during the late 19th century, it seems like that there was an explosion of like, quote unquote, fashion boots. Mm -hmm. Would you agree with that? And what were some of those styles like, if so? Yeah, I really feel like the late 19th century is characterized by those ubiquitous high button boots. Mm -hmm. They were standard for daytime wear and were generally made of sturdy leather. And they extended above the ankle and covered most of the lower leg. And now we have to remember that skirts during this period were floor length, making the mere sight of an ankle quite a (laughs) scandalous affair. So it makes sense that this type of footwear would be so widely adopted because it protected what was perceived to be a very erogenous zone. Mm -hmm. This meant, of course, that these boots would eventually be eroticized by the turn of the 20th century. And there are some surviving examples of fetish boots that are quite interesting to see. For sure. I'm sure we're going to get lots of requests for more information on fetish boots. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, Okay. So we haven't talked too, too much yet about materiality, but some of the shoes in the early 20th century, which is where we're moving on to, are so metallic, so blingy, so embellished that one might actually think that they could date 100 years into the future, you know, today perhaps. Why the focus on the visuals and the extra extravagant materials at this time in footwear? Well, the taste for these flashier styles can absolutely be attributed to rising hemlines Mm -hmm. during the early decades of the 20th century. And the simple fact that women's legs were exposed and on view had a profound impact on footwear design, which, yes, resulted in the use of ultra-glamorous materials. But also, the emergence of these particular style lines that were intended to elongate these legs that were newly visible to the public. Yeah, there are so many pairs from this era that are to die for in the book. Do you have any faves? My gosh, way (laughs) too many. Because this is probably my favorite era in shoe design, and I especially love the super glitzy T-straps 
of the 1920s and 30s. But perhaps my favorite shoe in the entire book is an evening shoe from the Metropolitan Museum of Arts collection that dates to 1935. And it's by the American shoe company Delman, which was founded in 1919. Mm -hmm. And it's made of this really sumptuous apple green silk satin with metallic leather cutout latticework. And if that doesn't sound fabulous enough, this shoe is further embellished with multicolored rhinestones, and it even has a jeweled buckle that fastens this metallic gold and silver leather strap. Yes. It's magnificent. (laughs) I mean, some of these are really like little works of art. They are. For sure. Um, If I had to pick my favorite era shoes, I would definitely say it's the 1930s and the 1940s. Mm -hmm. How are many of these styles, especially evocative of their era? Well, culturally speaking, the 1930s and 40s were largely defined by World War II Mm -hmm. and the widespread rationing uh, that also had a profound impact on fashionable dress. But although the restrictions on rubber and leather put limitations on civilian footwear production in Europe, it actually brought about a spirit of ingenuity Mm -hmm. when it came to designers using unconventional materials like cork and wood and straw and cellophane. And I find those designs particularly fascinating. Sometimes the greatest forms of creativity come out of conflict and strife, I feel like. Out of necessity. Yeah, for sure. So um, in the 1950s, this Mm -hmm. is a time period when we start to see stilettos make their appearance. I think it would be really interesting for our listeners to learn that there are certain developments that particularly made this style of stiletto possible. Do you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, the word stiletto translates to dagger or knife in Italian, uh, which is a reference to the innovative steel rod that was designed to be able to support the wearer's body weight on this ultra skinny heel. Mm -hmm. It was quite a development and... There are several designers that are credited with pioneering this style, some of them being Salvador Ferragamo, Roger Vivier, and Andre Perugia. But whoever can take the credit for this, it's obviously been a very, very lasting style. And all of those designers were innovators in their own right. Right, right. So it's almost like a technological advancement or innovation in shoe design that allowed the stiletto to exist. Yes, precisely. Yeah, yeah. You know in the book that the 1960s, and I would also say this is true for the 1970s, quote, saw a proliferation of novelty shoe designs, end quote. What Mm -hmm. was it that made them novel? Designers got especially imaginative during this time period, I think, Mm -hmm. and really reconceptualized the very form of the shoe, of what a shoe could even look like. Mm -hmm. For example, you have Beth Levine, who is credited as the first lady of American footwear. (laughs) And she had such crazy kooky designs like her topless no shoe that basically just attached to the bottom of the wearer's foot via adhesive pads. (laughs) So no upper, but it was just an unbroken leg line. I want to know what that felt like to take them off at the end of the night. 
I'm sure there was pain. <laughs> but Beth Levine and other designers also experimented with new synthetic materials during this period. So you see really cool shoes made out of plastics and vinyl and spandex. So it was a really innovative, interesting time in footwear design. Yeah, I would agree. And uh, we also have um, a lot of the Beth Levine archive at FIT Special oh Collection. Oh I need to come see it. Yes, you do. So to me, and, and tell me if I'm wrong on this, Risa, the 80s and the 90s are a little bit hard for me to distinguish in terms of the aesthetics of shoes, especially the high-end designer shoes. I'm curious as to your thoughts on that. And, and do you think that there, at that time, was a cultural shift in how people, quote-unquote, collect shoes at this time? Well, I think during this period, there were a lot of revival designs mm-hmm. that emerged, which perhaps contributes to that indistinguishable quality mm-hmm. that you're picking up on. But I do think that cultural shift exists in the way people consumed shoes, mm-hmm. that you started to see shoes in multiplicity. Yeah. This idea of if you like it, buy it in every color. Yes. But also the collecting of shoes as works of art, mm-hmm. almost like small sculptures, not necessarily to wear, but to possess. To have. Which is a concept that does kind of bridge into the 21st century as well. Especially in sneaker culture. Absolutely. It's about the having of the thing, not necessarily the wearing of the thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to quote you here. You say, quote, The new millennium ushered in an age of technology that revolutionized the design and production of footwear, end quote. How so? And who are some of the most avant-garde designers that you feature from this period? Well, with the 21st century, you have technologies like 3D printing and digital printing and injection molding that are these new tools that designers get to play with. Mm -hmm. And that does ultimately lead to more avant-garde designs that ultimately challenge traditional notions of form and function that have kind of ruled footwear production and consumption. Breaking the rules. Yeah. And... There are certain design firms that emerge at this time that are really working in this way. And I think one that is leading this charge is the Dutch design firm United Nude. And they produce exciting designs that are really architectural and futuristic. And they do a bunch of cool collabs with other artists, with designers. Even architects. Even architects. Mm-hmm. And I love their stuff so much. I admit I have a couple pairs in my own closet. As do I. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I'm going to have to see them. <laughs> um, my, I, I had this really p- cool pair of, like, cantilevered boots that I had had of theirs that I'd had for a really long time. And they've recently bit the dust. And I was, oh, no. And I was really sad. Is it the Eames? It's the boots that have the cutout heel that kind of, like, go oh, like yeah, that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's okay. I have the shoe version of them still. Oh, perfect. <laughs> I have a pair of shoes, and they call it the Eames shoe because it looks like the leg of an Eames chair. Oh. Yes, the mid-century chair. I love that. Yeah. Um, Risa, thank you so much for joining us. I adore the book, Dress Listeners. This is a perfect gift for anyone of any age. Um, We highly encourage you to seek it out. Where can people find it? Shoes can very easily be ordered via Amazon or otherwise directly through the Abbeville Press website. But 
I have recently spotted it out in the wild for sale at local bookstores like The Strand, as well as in museum gift shops. And just the other day, I saw it at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and it's at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. So you can pick it up on your next museum visit. Yeah. And I have to say, as like a fellow author, there is nothing more exciting than seeing your book in the wild. <laughs> I was so excited. <laughs> I was in Dusseldorf to go see the Erga Schiele show, like, I don't know, a few years ago. And they had one of my books in their bookshop. And I was like, oh my God. Did you take a picture? I did. I and, took a picture. And I was like, do you guys want me to sign this for you? And they looked at me like I was insane. <laughs> no, I'm like, no, I promise. I'm actually the author. <laughs> So thank you so very much for joining us again, Risa. It's a pleasure every time. I'm happy to be back and hopefully I'll see you again soon. Yeah, and, and we can't wait to know what your next book will be about. So there's that. Stay tuned. <laughs> Risa, thank you again for joining us on Dressed. Cass isn't here with us today, but I know how much she loves tiny miniature things. And this actually includes Rice's book, which is adorably tiny. But don't let that fool you, dress listeners. It is jam-packed with tons of scholarly information and also a ton of jaw-droppingly gorgeous images of shoes. So, you know, it is definitely an enviable collection. And and there, there are more than a few pair included in the book that I would love, love, love to have. So go out there. Find Rice's book, Shoes. And um, I think that does it for us this week, dress listeners. May you consider the soles in your closet next time you get dressed. Remember, we do love hearing from you. So if you'd like to write to us, you can do so at dress at iheartmedia.com or DM us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast, which is where we post images for each week's episodes. Thank you, as always, to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each week. We will catch you on Thursday. Dress, the History of Fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.